Thank you, and uh, hey, thanks for your prayers. I mean, whatever, whatever job we're doing, you know, whether you're a mechanic, a salesman, a, you know, a teacher, a, I don't know, think of another job. Doctor! We're all on mission, aren't we? We're all on mission, and I think that's the thing to remember. Um, I really appreciate your prayers, but actually all of us, we're all about bringing people out of darkness and into light, aren't we? That's the mission of the church, and wherever we're stationed, that's our mission outpost. By the way, just to say at the beginning, um, if you notice my voice is a little bit hoarse. Do you know you're detecting that? I've had, in fact I'm suffering from, man flu. Now, there's been research that this is actually worse than any disease or illness on the planet. It is so severe, I actually put my car on eBay. I didn't think I was going to pull through, but I am here. So I just want to be thankful to the Lord. But that is a miracle. But I was on one of my flights recently, I was hopping over to the Channel Islands to do a little bit of work. And when you fly, you know, on a clear day, which we did as we flew out as clear, and you look at all these houses and stuff, and in the twilight, see the lights come on. It's almost, it's a picture of the church, really, the dispersed church during the week, all out doing our stuff. I think that's such an important thing for us to remember, all on mission, whatever sphere of influence we've been given. Now, thinking about the church and the way that this has been set up, and it's still early days, and we're week 23 or 24 or whatever, one of the things we're still learning to do is how to be a community together. And I just said to Reese, who was on the, what do you call that thing? The beat bar? Oh, what? A home. A home. Okay, that's cool. So why are you on the, the box, uh, banging the box? Um, you know, I, 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 was just, I just said to Reese earlier, I said one of the things I've really appreciated about the church here, about Redeemer, is if I could describe it, I would say there is a, there is a kindness about it. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, the word kind can often be seen to be a little bit weak. You know, if someone was to describe me, well, they probably wouldn't. But if someone said, he's a kind man, well, that's never happened, is it, Karen? But if someone said, he's kind, you'd think, oh, that's a bit sort of weak. But actually, that's a very strong thing. And there is, a, there is a kindness and a peace and actually a gentleness about the church, which I think is very, very uh, magnetic. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I think it's a very precious thing. Uh, and I've noticed, even in the short time we've been meeting together, I certainly feel that I'm growing in depth of faith again. Um, and, I, and I'm aware of that happening in other people's lives. And we are on a journey together. People talk a lot about journeying, but we are on a journey together and we're all learning together. So this morning is a communion service. And we thought that we would focus a little bit in on communion. Why we take it, how do we take it, what, what are we trying to do when we take communion, what's actually happening here. And just to just step back a little bit and think fresh about the things that we're doing in the church. Now, uh, I like preparing talks because it is an excuse for me to sit on a sofa at home with a coffee and, and a computer and a couple of books and... And be lazy, actually. <laughs> I'm doing a sermon, darling. I can't help you with washing up. It's a really, it's a blessed time. And while I was um, uh, sitting on the sofa with a with a, a coffee um, uh, on Saturday morning uh, during my retirement, um, I, I, my mind started to wander into some scenarios that I've been involved in in the past over the years. Um, 
And, and I started to think of a man that I knew a long time ago, and, and I only bumped into a few years ago again, and I started to think about him. I thought, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. And then I started to think back about his life and his family. And I remembered, it I didn't trigger first. I think that this family, and I won't mention who else, it's not fair because it gets bigger and everything. This man that I remembered, I think he was involved in probably one of the first dynamic encounters I had with the power of the Holy Spirit moving today to touch and transform lives. And to cut a long story short, his wife had, was diagnosed with absolutely chronic ME to the point where she couldn't pick up a bread knife to cut a loaf of bread. She couldn't turn the pages of a newspaper and was pretty much on the sofa downstairs, living on the sofa in the living room downstairs. And then she could get help upstairs, so pretty much lived downstairs while her husband was working. And we, we believed in the church in praying for people, um, but I'm not sure we had a robust understanding that God could actually do anything about that. I think we just felt it was right to pray. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I think that, that can happen as Christians. We feel it's right to pray, but do we really believe that God can change things? I don't know. Anyway, um, one day I was driving past our house, and this had been going on for some months, if not over a year. And this was new for me. You know, I, I suddenly felt uh, an impression in my mind about America. Now, you sort of think, do you want to go, is it because I want to go on holiday there? Or is this, you know, is as I drove past the house. So, um, learning as I have done to respond to these things pretty immediately and being prepared to look stupid on occasion, which I'm now well used to, I did a U-turn in the car and I, I went to the house and the, her carer was there and let me in. And I sat down uh, next to her on the sofa and I said, I've just come out to pray for you. I was driving past and I felt I should come and pray for you. I said, um... Does America mean anything to you? And she screamed at me. She screamed and asked me to leave. So I left. A bit like, what is that about? You know, I mean, we don't all like Americans, but I mean, that's a, that's a bit of an extreme reaction. So I um, uh, went home and then I phoned a colleague of mine and uh, we agreed to go back. We phoned up the husband and we went back. You know, after he'd finished work, he was back home. And a story came out that she'd been through some incredible trauma uh, in the States when they were working over there and it had been uh, a very, very tough time. And they'd left the country quickly and they, they pretty much lost everything when they came back. And, and she got ill straight after that. Um, so we prayed. And, and to cut a long story short, that evening, because there was a lot more detail to this, as we prayed, I've never seen anything like it. She sat up on a sofa and she just literally said, I feel well. She, she forgave the situation that happened in America. She forgave people. She prayed for peace. She forgave people in her family. She worked through everything. And said, I feel well. And the guy I was with, I mean, this is all pretty much new for us. The guy I was with said, well, how well do you feel? She said, I feel very well. He said, why don't you get up and try and walk up the stairs then? So she stood up and fell over. And I thought, oh no, that's really embarrassing. You know, she's terrible. So we helped her back on the sofa. 
And then uh, we started to pray for her again. She's a little bit angry. Started to pray for her again. And, uh, and as we prayed for her muscles to be strengthened, because she'd been sofa ridden for over a year. Uh, and she hadn't really stood up on her own. We prayed for her muscles to strengthen. We just peacefully, very gently, no big razzmatazz, no background worship music, you know, Essex bloke, bloke from the north praying, not very eloquent, you know, all new for us. Uh, as we prayed, uh, she then stood up again and she ran up and down the stairs. And uh, she went swimming uh, the next day. And then the day after that, she went shopping for the first time in the year. And her husband phoned me and said she's just spent an absolute fortune. And I'm not sure how it And it was, for me, one of the most profoundest things at that stage in my life that I'd seen. Now, I think there is an element in physical healing, which God can do. I think there's an element there in emotional healing, which God can do. Dealing with trauma. Trauma can have massive impact on people's lives. Massive. It can have all kinds of physical effects on us as well. I don't think you totally understand this, but... We know that it happens. And what I do know is that the Holy Spirit deeply and profoundly moved in that woman's life. But being the evangelical that I was, I needed to understand how. I mean, is this right? What, it, what, what happened? It's, it's not magic. So what happened? I needed to drill into it. And this passage, which I'll read you now, so profoundly affected me when I read it, I used it in all kinds of passwords for computer logins, which I've now changed, so don't attempt to use it, that would be wrong. And it's Isaiah 53, which is a profound, prophetic passage in the Bible, which talks about the work that Jesus would do on the cross. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. It's amazing how as a good Christian man or woman you can read that passage and absorb the theological truth of it but move over the practice of it. It's phenomenal how we can do that. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That is a profoundly deep passage. We can narrow it down by simply saying this. We call it the great exchange. He took it so that you go free. That's amazing. He took sickness so we can know healing. He took, he took angst so that we can know peace. Punishment. He took the punishment so that we can know peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. <coughs> Technically, that's how it works. It's like a legal exchange. It's phenomenal. And then you get to something like 1 Corinthians 5. And in the Bible, Paul says... Christ is our Passover. That's amazing. I don't think we often dwell on it. All the stuff that pummels us in life, Jesus took it when we take it to him. That is absolutely phenomenal. And of course you'll remember the Passover, won't you? Three and a half thousand years ago. No, the Exodus time. When there was suffering. And God sent the plagues. And, and you'll know. And we'll just rehearse it anyway. Get a lamb, kill the lamb, sprinkle the blood around the door frame on the doorpost. It says in Exodus 11, gird your loins, put your sandals on, eat quick, but death will pass over. But not one firstborn, not one baby, the people of God will die. The Pharaoh set them free. He did a runner. That's the Passover. Celebrated by the Jews for thousands of years. Christ is our Passover. It's phenomenal. I, I can't bring to you the depth of this, really. But what I do know is that when we break bread, when we eat together in communion, it is not a ritual. I do know that. It's not meant to be a ritual. It is a celebration of profound victory over the forces of darkness over our lives. That's what it is. In the most incredible way. It's also a solemn time because we're proclaiming that Christ was our Passover and that he died for us. We need to remember that as well. But actually it's a profound declaration of victory. This is one of the reasons, I have to say, why I would embrace a Pentecostal charismatic theology. Because I can't you know, I can't divorce the, the theory from the practice. I can't just let it stay in my head. I, I, I've got to believe that this stuff can work out. Don't, don't you think that? I mean, if it, I've got, 
I mean, even if I never see it in my lifetime again, if I never see the power of God at work, giving people peace, transforming lives, I've got to, I've got to believe for it. Now, I'm going to keep praying for it, and I'm going to keep talking about it. I, I lay hands on, in prayer, just to say, hundreds of people a year. I mean, all the time I'm praying for people, because I believe that something happens. I believe that when we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, sin now to the cross, when we proclaim the resurrection, when we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, I call me naive, but I just think something's going to happen. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. So I'm kind of full of faith. So when I'm taking communion, for me it's, it's more than just about me before God. It, it, it's about the community of people profoundly moved by the victory that the cross gave us, remembering it and proclaiming his death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a massive declaration. So we need to try and work out, well, how, do we, how does this work? How do we do this? Now, the first time I ever was allowed in the communion service was uh, in a brethren chapel in 1990. I think they allowed me to be present, but I wasn't allowed to, to take the bread and the wine because I wasn't a follower of Jesus. Quite right, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the day I gave my life to Christ, it was a Sunday. So the following Sunday, they had communion every week, and I was allowed to, to take the bread and the wine. I've got to be honest with you, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I, it was, because they used to use very strong wine. And most of the people were over 70. So it looked like everyone was going to die through choking fits when they, when they take it. And the bread was quite claggy and thick. And so people would choke on the wine and, and almost suffocate on the bread. And it would bring out in an 18-year-old kid in, in Hornchurch, the sinner in me. Like how many people are, are going to make pull through and are going to make it, you know? And then it was a ritual. So what would happen is it was an open communion. So anyone could introduce a hymn or a passage, as long as you weren't a woman actually at the time. A man could, and I never understood that one at the time. I didn't get it. So, and then, and then they would pass the, the bread and the wine round. And then everyone, so you'd go like this. <laughs> and then, like this, opposite that. I was the youngest person And then there'd be this rustling. It's a rustling noise. It was like this. The first week, I'm like, what's that? It was the offering. So straight after communion, everyone would get their purses out. And then they'd rustle in the notes. And then the bags would come around. Every week. It was exactly the same. And, and what had happened was, it was profoundly meaningful to them, but to someone like me, I didn't get it. No one really explained it. They just said that now I could take it. So it was a little, for me at the time, it was a little zipper pull, and, uh, and a bit of thinly sized white bread. And then a bit of rustling. They ritualized the whole thing. It was meaningful to them. But I couldn't help but think that something was missing. Because when you go to scripture, there's something more dynamic happening. The other problem you have is, 
Despite what you may think, there is actually very little instruction in communion uh, passages about how you actually do it. I mean, there's, seriously, there's very little. I just want to put this on record. There is, and I'm not ridiculing, but there is nowhere in the Bible where it says you've got to have little cups or cubes of bread. It's not in this Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible where it says you have to come to the front. It's not there. There is nowhere in the Bible that talks about open table or closed table. There is nowhere in the Bible that says what you've got to say before you take communion. I know that's shocking, but there's nothing. So what we have to do is take a good look at Scripture and think, what is the theological framework? Why are we actually taking it? And then let's look at the scenarios in the New Testament and try and understand why we're doing it and how we do it. And the best example we have is 1 Corinthians 11. Now, we need to keep Isaiah 53 in the backdrop because that's the power, that's the truth behind the death of Jesus. And then we look at the practice. And, and the letters in the New Testament are just that. They are letters in response to a problem. It is much easier to understand what's happening if you see both letters, isn't it? So, you know, if, if someone's written a complaint letter and then there's an answer, you can't just read the answer, can you? You want to see the complaint letter too, don't you? You want to see the whole story. Well, we don't have that. What we have is Paul the Apostle sometimes having a white hump, telling people off, sometimes explaining things, sometimes feeling a bit exasperated. And to be honest with you, uh, you have to understand that often I think with his personality, he was probably pacing up and down with someone trying to write this letter in, in, sitting in the corner while he's off on one. Because it does come across like that sometimes. Have you noticed that when you read the Bible? It's like, I wish I baptized the Pilus, what's the Father's? So that's what's happening here, I think. And we've got to try and make a best guess from it. 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no place for you. It's a good way to start, isn't it? For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means dead, not sleeping. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, eat together. You should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I'll give further instructions. That's fascinating. So there was a meal happening. But some people were rich. So they were doing the equivalent, the New Testament equivalent, again, the dominoes in. Some people didn't have any money. People were in their cliques. But it was a meal. And, and it doesn't say here, don't have a meal. It says when you do it, share together, do life together. What we do have in Scripture here is that communion was not individualistic. And that's important. For too long, I think, in churches, and I've always felt this, from way back when I was in the Brethren Assembly, when we just have the cup and the piece of bread, and it is just us and God, something is actually missing. It's missing that you're not in community. It's about being a family as well. There's two relationships taking place. The vertical relationship with God, and a horizontal relationship with each other. <coughs> so there's different ways we can take communion here. We could have a meal together. I actually think sometimes to organise that would be an amazing thing to do. A fellowship meal where we eat and we remember Jesus together and we invite people in and we do something community like that. I think churches that eat together do well together, actually. Just a thought. But when it comes to actually communion, one of the things is we ritualise it. The other way churches do it would they'd have a table at the front in you know the established traditions and a priest would issue communion because the theology is that the priest has the anointing to issue forgiveness and to consecrate the bread and the blood and it's you know the, the in joke isn't it? it's like magic hands because magic hands well we don't believe that because we believe in a priesthood of all believers that we're all together for God and we can go straight to Jesus for these things so we don't do that you could have a table at the front which you just come and get the, the bread and the wine and then just take it back to your seat. And then sit on your own and be quiet for a moment and then take communion. You could do that. But again, it's a little bit individualistic. A bit like if we just passed around stuff. It's a bit individualistic, but there's another problem. I could have the right waiting hungry lorry. Or Laura. Or everyone. We could be in church for years together and have enmity between people and be breaking bread. That's a problem. That's how divisions come. And my takeaway from 1 Corinthians 11 is don't let there be divisions and factions. And there's not many easy ways to break that down other than to be a kind, loving, grace-filled family together. If you're in a church and you're breaking bread, 
and you've got a problem with someone, I think from scripture there, that's really dangerous. And I think it slows church growth. I think it grieves the Holy Spirit. I think it's spiritually deadly. So we have to find a way in which we can navigate that and be a family. More than that, we need to find a way in which we bring the power and truth of Isaiah 53 into our gatherings. Now, I always used to struggle with communion at church, but I'll tell you what I'd really love to see as a leader here. When we break bread, the manifest presence of God is felt amongst us. The people can get prayer when they're suffering. You've got some trauma. You've been depressed. People can pray for you. And you break bread. And you remember the death of Jesus. And you lay hands on one another. And you proclaim his death, but also his resurrection. And you're a family. I believe that done in the right way, in the way that pleases God, we should expect to see people healed during communion. Because it's Isaiah 53. I'd expect to see people comforted who are feeling down or low because it's been a tough time. I'd expect to see that. I'd expect there to be a culture of honour and respect too. Not frivolous, but a deep abiding sense that God is with us. I'd expect there to be joy because it's a celebration too. It's a victory. I have to tell you, when we were singing that Gabe Spafford song, I had tears streaming down my cheeks. I actually thought for one minute, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to preach. I had a massive lump in my throat. When we break bread together, we remember victory. Sin nailed. It is best done, in my opinion, together as a family. And I don't think in communion mornings, what we should do is think, I've been a bit wound up by, uh, by Laurie. So just before we break bread, I'm going to wander over to him and say, I'm just going to forgive you for being an absolute pig to me over the last week. Because that would just about destroy him, wouldn't it? That is not a good thing to do. The idea is if you're constantly living in community, you would have dealt with that beforehand. Or, the better way, if you do think Laurie's been an absolute pain in the neck, you go over to him and you say, would you pray for me, brother? I really appreciate you. Do with your own heart. That's the better way to do it. But when we start to be a family together, then God moves amongst us. You see it. When two or three are gathered in my name, in my name, they are amongst them. I'll do anything you ask. Because actually said it in the context of conflict resolution in Matthew 18. So we'd be a family. So some people have asked questions, why do we do like this? Well, A, there's logistics. Uh, if we've got a thousand people in the church, that's going to be a lot of little cups. That could be quite expensive. And we might have to make some redundancies into the future to afford it. It becomes a logistical exercise that is uh, very difficult. We've done communion like this with 2,000 men at the gathering, 300 men, it worked. So there's a practical thing too. The second thing is, we've got to find a way to try and practice 1 Corinthians 11, embrace the power of Isaiah 53, and 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover, and understand all that together. I think if you can be a community together, and you can just gather and say, would you pray for me? Or, you know, Christ is our Passover. 
pray for one another. Uh, let's remember Jesus died for us now. You don't, there's not a specific word you have to use. But just bless you. Well, I appreciate you. Let's remember Christ together. You know. I, I just think that is a very profoundly moving thing. But not always in your cliques. That's the thing. You find other people you're not familiar with. Break up everything. The third thing is, this is actually missionally sensitive. Because... If you're unfamiliar with communion or you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, you can still come to the front and get someone to pray for you if you want to prayer. You can be anonymous if you want to. You're not going to be exposed to everyone looking around thinking, well, that person didn't take a little cup. It's a little bit chaotic. So actually, it's missionally really friendly too. Also, we need to think about the people who don't normally come to church. Little cups and little pieces of bread can be confusing for people, as it was for me when I was 18. So we're just trying to find ways in which we can take communion but make it accessible to people. And our position is as a church, if you know you love Jesus Christ, you know he died for you, and you are welcome to take communion. If you don't know where you're at with Jesus, we would love to pray for you. We can pray for a blessing over your family. Dan and I would love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you about it some more. If you just want to sit and be quiet, that's okay. There are times when life is a bit tough, and talking to someone might just be a step too far. Do you know what? It's okay. Do you know what, if you're just feeling a little bit down about things and you, you just can't face it, that's okay. That's fine. In other words, we're being a family, doing family business, remembering Jesus together. Taking the bread and taking the wine. Proclaiming his death. And praying that we see a move of the Holy Spirit upon us as well. Now, I've laboured this this morning because I've just been trying to puts a foundational marker stone down to why are we doing what we're doing. And I'm sure as we go along we'll look back and think, well maybe we could have done things like this or maybe we could have done things like that. That's fine. You know, we're just trying to work along as a family and be as honourable as we can. So as we break bread now, I will pray and I think we want to have a moment where we bring our lives before God. And we've said that most times we've done it. Think about your life. Think about where you are with Jesus. Thank Jesus for the cross. Anything that's coming up to the surface you know you, you know you need to deal with, well, do that. Do business with your Father in heaven. And then we'll take communion. The guys will come up and there'll be some music. And, and I would encourage you to get a cup and get some bread or a few cups, because it's not alcoholic, so it could be a bit dodgy. Alcohol kills the germs. No, it's not use alcohol. Uh, get together in a group and be a family. And if you need prayer for healing or comfort or peace, then then say, would you, would you stand with me in this time and proclaim the death of Jesus together? So it gets a bit messy, I understand, but you, there's lots of space in this room which makes it really easy to be in a group together. Take communion to someone that you don't know. That'd be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Do that, be a family, and then we'll come back and we'll worship. Is that okay? So let's, uh, let's be quiet for a moment. And let's bring our lives before Jesus. Remember the power of Isaiah 53. By his wounds we are healed. Remember 1 Corinthians 5. Christ is our Passover. 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's remember now as we sit there quietly, it's also not just about us, but the thousands of people in Chesterfield who don't know Jesus. And we want them to know that the Lord laid on Jesus their iniquities as well. He took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as we regularly do, if you're sitting here today, and you don't know who Jesus is, or you're sitting on the fence and making a decision, then we'd invite you to come and chat to us because we'd love to introduce you today to Jesus Christ. We'd love to do that.